Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I am your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim, and I have to ask, are you there? Are you listening? Did you survive 2023? I'm thinking if you are listening to this, you're probably alive, so you probably did survive. I barely did, if I'm being honest. Maybe you can still hear my voice, but my year ended pretty crappy. And it made things a little more difficult around the holidays when, a week before Christmas, I got COVID again. And this time was much worse than the first time. The first time I got it was in October of 22. And I had just gotten boosted like two weeks prior. So I was at my best level of antibodies in my blood and all that stuff. And my immune system just kicked its ass within like 24 hours. I was sick for about two days and I was fine. And I was barely sick, so barely sick back then that I didn't even think I had it. There's a whole story as to how I found out that I did, but it took till day 12 for me to figure it out. But I only showed symptoms for like literally two days. This time, not so much. This time... You know, I didn't get boosted this time, and from this point forward, I will always get boosted when a new one comes out, because, damn it, this sucked. Admittedly, I wasn't that sick, although it's funny because it's relative, right? It's not like I was throwing up, which I hear some people have been doing with this particular strain. It's not like I was really, you know, feverish and stuff. It was just this, like, it started kicking in about a week before Christmas Day. So about that Monday, late that Monday. And then Tuesday, I was like feeling it in my chest. And I'm like, this feels exactly like the last time I had COVID for two days. And I tested and sure enough, I was positive. For the next four or five days, I was coughing a lot, extremely tired, just overall feeling crappy. I kept having weird night sweats, which suck. And low-grade fever for like five days into Christmas, basically. So Christmas around here was kind of low key. A lot of people we invited over didn't come over because, you know, I had COVID. And there was also another cold slash flu, something else going through our house with some of the other people. Everyone else tested multiple times and only I actually had COVID. I know exactly where I got it, or at least the only place I could have gotten it. I've told you about my daughter, Alice. She plays the sport of curling and she's really ambitious and she tried out for the Youth Olympics. And a week, well, five days before I started showing symptoms, she had the state 18 and under playdowns, which was basically the state championship to see who got to go to nationals. And her team was one of the, I almost said combatants, but I like that word better than competitors. And so we were up in Bemidji, Minnesota, where my mom's family is from. And uh, I was around a lot of people. One of the members of her team got it. I got it. And I'm sure a lot of other folks did too. Some were at that curling club. It sucks too, because I went the entire year doing stuff. Always careful, but sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes it just gets you when you're around people and no one's masking. 90% of the time, what are you going to do? Eventually it catches up to you, I think. You can only be a hermit for so long. So I picked it up, which was not great. This was much worse than the previous time, but I will admit that I've had worse bouts of the flu. I've had worse colds even. The problem with this is that it just lingers. And this happened last time too, even with the very, very mild symptoms. You feel just kind of tired for a couple of weeks. So I'm going on week three, in essence, when I'm recording this, and I'm just still finding myself getting tired. I'm guessing 
the weather isn't helping because I swear to God, we've only seen the sun once in the last two weeks. So that always kind of makes you feel like, yeah, I just want to sleep. But also when I'm tired and I'm sleeping till 12 or one, cause everyone's off, you know, for Christmas break. When I'm sleeping till 12 or 1, I mean, I barely see any sunlight as it is. So you start feeling like you live on the planet Mars and you just get kind of tired. So it's just that time of year mixed with also having COVID. It just kind of knocks you down. I was not as productive these last two weeks of the year as I was hoping to be. In fact, my big plan was, was that I was going to work and get a bunch of stuff done right before Christmas. And then take the week of Christmas up to New Year's off when my wife, who's a teacher, had off of work and we could all hang out together. And I ended up just spending most of that time in my bedroom in the basement watching lots of Star Trek because Star Trek is my cinematic comfort food. And so I just ended up watching almost the entire run of Star Trek Enterprise. I didn't do anything. I just laid around. I slept a lot. I was fine eating. I was drinking fine. I had a low-grade fever a little bit. I had a really annoying cough for about five days, and then it cleared up. And it's a weird cough because it's like you feel it in your chest, but it doesn't feel like when you cough, like it helps. It just felt unproductive. It wasn't a productive cough. It was just kind of a dry, obnoxious, kind of painful cough. But then it went away. And now it's just a matter of kind of trying to ease myself back into my regular schedule. So I'm back to working again, which is actually kind of nice because I'm sick of laying around watching TV. I've been able to hang out with my family and friends again, which is nice. We were able to make up Christmas just over the New Year's weekend. So that was nice. But now the wife's going back to work and all that time we planned to hang out with everybody. Well, I got it all messed up. Everyone was sick. Yay for the modern world in which we live. Am I right? So yeah, I've learned my lesson. I will get the boosters from now on, if only to lessen the impact it may have on me if I'm unable to avoid it, which I will say I go on social media every day and I've been kind of making jokes about it, even though it's not funny, but it is, it's not ha ha funny. Let's just say that. And I point out to my wife, every time I jump on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, it seems like two to three people are posting about how they got COVID. And I'm not kidding. This has happened consistently for the last two weeks. Every day, two to three new people are like, crap, I got COVID. This current strain out there is pretty hardcore. Like, it really does easily evade existing immunity. It sucks. It's obviously nowhere near what the original or the Delta strains were like. But damn it, it sucks. I hate it. Stupid. COVID. God. I hate that this is the world we live in now. But it just kind of is. So... I got COVID. I wasn't able to get as much done as I want, but I was actually at a very good spot in the movie making process for my new movie, The Wad. I was at a good spot that involuntarily taking off two weeks didn't kill the project. I ended up losing probably about four days of work, but it was other stuff. It was more business related stuff that now I have to make up this week. But the movie itself is actually in a really good spot. Now I was supposed to film some scenes that I'm in the Wednesday before Christmas, but I had COVID, so I couldn't do it. So we had to push that off a couple weeks, but that's not going to negatively affect my ability to finish the movie. The only thing that would negatively affect it is if I can't ever film it, then it's a problem. 
we just pushed it off and it was no big deal. Given the holidays and all that stuff, I was being a little ambitious with trying to get it done. I only have three people left to film. Now, normally I would say three scenes or whatever. No, it's three people because every person has like a collection of scenes because a lot of times it's interviews or it's reenactments or whatever. I filmed everybody but myself, Mark Hader, and the host, Elliot Mim, who plays Danny Johnson as an adult, who is the host of the documentary. We just have that stuff left and then I'm done. Now, I'm already getting all that scheduled. I have my stuff scheduled for next week. And then Elliot's stuff will be probably potentially next week as well. And then I just have to nail down Mark Hader. But Mark Hader, the only reason we hadn't done it up till now is he found a really cool location. But where we're supposed to film is someone's house. And they wanted to wait until after the holidays, which it's fine by me. It's going to be like two hours of work and we're done. Mark's playing General Castle in the movie. And, and he's not a big part. He shows up a little bit. But honestly, to film his stuff will take about an hour. About an hour of setup and tear down. An hour to shoot. And then probably two days to edit. So, I mean, it's not a huge thing. And we'll get it done this month. It's interesting because of the type of movie The Wad is, this sort of mockumentary, faux documentary. Because of the type of movie it is, it's coming along really fast in the editing room because it's not a lot of, I don't know, there's not a lot of action. It's interviews and there's only so much you can do with an interview to keep it interesting without it suddenly being almost like disconcerting that you just have 4,000 angles or whatever. So editing is quick. Now I figure once I get the rough edit, there's going to be a lot that has to be done to go through and really get it. So it moves and the pace is steady. So it doesn't get boring. That's the big thing you worry about. And with this in particular, because there's a mockumentary and there are jokes, I got to make sure that the pacing is correct. Otherwise I'm going to lose people. I mean, it's a big experiment, the whole thing. And I've said it many times before, but I'm really enjoying it. So I'm in a good spot. So I guess if there was a time for me to get COVID, I guess that was the best time there was. Even still, I, I don't wish it on anyone because it's terrible. And I don't like it. And I'm sick of being tired. But it's getting incrementally better every day. I mean, the thing is, is I only tested negative like three days ago. Since then, I find I might need a nap during the day. If I don't get like a lot of sleep the night before, I'll probably need a little nap. But other than that, I'm just taking it easy just because I can right now. And there's no reason to push myself because that's when you really overstress your body. And what's the point of that? I want to get over this and be good. Every day is incrementally better. I feel way better now than I did a week ago. Let's just say that a week ago, I was still like, this is never going to end. Yay. Happy Christmas. Like we, we celebrated Christmas day. The kids waited for me to get out of bed because they knew I was sick and I threw a mask on and I distanced from everyone. And honestly, at that point I tested, but it was barely showing up. So my levels were still low, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure I wasn't passing it on. So I stayed away from everybody and we opened presents. But as soon as we opened presents, I literally laid down on a hardwood floor, put on a blanket and slept for two hours wearing a mask. So I was um, pretty damn worn out. Like I said, I feel much better today than I did a week ago. And now it's just getting over it and getting back into things. The wad is coming together beautifully. I'm really happy with it. I cannot wait to finish it. Like I just, I can't wait to watch it all as one big thing. Cause every little piece we have, I love 
And when I do have chunks that flow from one to the next, because again, it's a series of reenactments and interviews and all that stuff. So things flow from one thing to the next and in trying to weave a story. Every time I'm able to get a chunk done of like maybe three, four, five scenes, I absolutely love it because it just works. A lot of times you end up with like one character setting up a joke in essence, and then the next little snippet of an interview is the punchline. And a lot of them are really funny. I really like them. And I just, I think it's a nice, interesting, different addition to the Mimiverse. And you know, while I had some downtime here, laying in bed watching Star Trek Enterprise, I had a few ideas for future projects, so that was kind of interesting. And it's strange. This time of year is usually when I have a little downtime and I start thinking about ideas for other movies to make. And this year was no different. It was just tinged by illness. <laughs> so maybe it's some weird ideas. I don't know. We'll see. I'm just, I want to finish this one, then worry about what to do next. I have ideas and one of them will come together. We'll see. Who knows? I don't know. The Mimiverse has to make it to 20 movies. The Wad is movie 19. So I'm this close, right? I'm this close. 2025 should be, <laughs> as long as we make one, movie number 20. Now, there are times when I wonder if it's financially sustainable, given how things have gone. Post-COVID has been difficult because a lot of times we would pull in a lot of money doing events, and now it feels like there are fewer events out there, fewer opportunities to do events, fewer events that I'm willing to travel to do. I probably did the least number of events in 2023 than I've done in 10 years. Looking at the year-end numbers, they reflect that. But we still did okay. Things are still going pretty well. It's funny, like the profit margin doesn't usually change very much. And I know this is getting into the weeds here a little bit with the ups and downs of the financials, but it's like the profit margin tends to stay roughly the same. So even though on paper we pulled in less, we also paid out less because we weren't paying to travel to go to places. And it's been kind of interesting to look at it from that perspective, to have a new way of looking at things because I kind of was starting to think that that was probably the case. Like the amount we spend compared to the amount we pull in was probably roughly equal to each other ratio wise, relational to each other based on how many events we do. Cause we'd go and do events. Sure. And we'd pull in a bunch of sales, but we'd have to spend a bunch of money to do it. The only problem is, is by not doing events, you don't get as much exposure to new people. And so sometimes the reach feels smaller. Plus Roku is doing some obnoxious crap and I'm hoping that I can update the Roku channel because they've changed their requirements for a channel and I have to have it done in the next like two weeks or my channel will disappear. They changed everything and I don't know why, I don't know what their logic is or what they did it or why or what the point was, but they're, I think, just updating their system and I get the impression that they're making it harder for people to have a Roku channel so as to discourage the ridiculous number of crappy channels on the Roku network. I don't know if you've ever looked at particularly like older movies or public domain movies. There's like a bunch of shitty, crappy channels out there that have all these movies on them. And I think there's so many of them now that 
it was almost too easy to put up a Roku channel. And I think there's a certain amount of logic in like, well, if we force people to actually go in and either spend some money to pay a coder to do it or be smart enough to be able to code it themselves, because that's what it used to be sort of more like a template thing where you just punch in a bunch of stuff and boom, you got a Roku channel. Now you have to do some full on like programming. And I think it probably makes it so that their network is much more stable and uniform across the entirety of it. I get it. And in the process, they're going to end up also getting rid of a ton of crappy channels that are just sucking up bandwidth. It just sucks because I need to spend the next two weeks figuring out how to update my existing channel to stay on there. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, I have a Roku channel called Drive-In Monsters, the films of Christopher R. Mim, that you can add to your Roku device and watch my movies. I need to update that really bad. And I've started the process a little bit tonight before I recorded this. And so I know that I can at least do it and been a programmer for, Jesus, 20 plus years, 25 years now, professionally. I can handle what it takes to update it. It's just a matter of I have to do a bunch of testing and customization. So it's going to take time and effort. And that's fine because I want people to have access to my movies because physical media sales are down. Although there have been a lot of stories in the media lately about physical media and how people are getting annoyed by streaming channels in dropping crap just because they feel like it and then suddenly you no longer have access to it where people are like vinyl collectors right they're like yeah but at least i have my vinyl records i think blu-rays and uhd blu-rays are starting to catch on a little bit where people are realizing wait a minute if i own it no one can take it away it's not like people like me have been saying that for years or anything but hey suddenly people are talking about how maybe owning things is better than streaming if i only had one of my movies available on my roku channel i could just take it away from everybody at any time i don't know why i would do that because i want people to watch my movies but i get it from some of these bigger business standpoints you know they're doing it for like tax write-offs and stuff which is disgusting that they spend all this money on making a movie and all these people put all their time and talent into it and then they just dump it like it doesn't exist that's just bull crap but i'm not going to do that if i'm going to spend a bunch of your money because contributors and my time and effort and blood sweat and tears to make a movie i want to make sure people can see it and that's actually the thing that stresses me the most is that i spend so much time on it i want people to see it and it's getting harder and harder to get people to actually find it because amazon sucks and no one really even likes prime anymore roku's one thing but even then they're switching things up people aren't buying dvds and blu-rays as often as they used to just makes me sad it's getting harder and harder to get my movies in front of people and i just think there's a shift going on and there has been for several years and the pandemic obviously made it worse in just people's movie viewing habits and theater going and it's just it's a transition that's ongoing. And I'm hoping people kind of step back and come back to physical media and realize that it's a bargain and you always get the highest quality possible that that format offers you. You never have to worry about bandwidth and you get cool extras that you don't get anywhere else. But you know, some people, they just want to watch movies or TV as a pure distraction. They're not into it like you and I, right? You and me, we're into it. Anyway, so I'm working on the wad. 
getting over this COVID thing. And my New Year's resolution is to not get COVID in calendar year 2024. Like I said, I'll get whatever booster they start throwing out there. I'm going to be first in line. Give me that damn booster. I don't want to do this again. So I've been working on the WAD, not behind schedule, but not quite where I wanted to be given what happened, but that's okay. I'll make it up. It's no big deal. If you'd like to contribute to the WAD, you still can at sainteuphoria.com, and I highly recommend that you do, and I would much appreciate it because contributors like you are what keep it alive for real. With the death, basically, of physical media, it's kind of flipped everything on its head where you don't make a movie and then make money after people buy it. It's people pre-buy it, and then you kind of make that money beforehand. And maybe I talk about money too much, but I'll be honest, without it, I can't do this. So if you like the Mimiverse, I need everybody to help out as best they can. It used to be easier. It's a lot harder now to keep this going. The profit margin stays roughly the same. So that's good. That means that's the sustainability profit margin <laughs> is what that is. And as long as we can maintain that, the Mimiverse exists. And it's not lucrative. I keep making sure everybody understands this because I'm definitely not living in a giant house driving expensive cars. I'm still driving the same damn minivan I've had since 2014, 10 years now, and just praying that it doesn't die because I don't think I could afford a new one and I need it. But the intangible things outweigh some of the tangible things of being able to do this for a living. That's the dream, right? And success is relative. If making a million dollars is success to you, I hope you make a million dollars. For me, it's always been to be able to continue to make movies. And thanks to folks like you, I have. And so I'm, I'm eternally grateful. And as we're entering a new year, my resolution is just to keep on going. Keep making movies and not get COVID. Because <laughs> this sucks. I'll have you know I'm editing out a lot of coughs. So because I have fallen behind a little bit and I do need to get back to work and it's a brand new year, I'm going to wrap this part up because not much has changed since last month's edition of the Mimiverse Monthly. Still working on the WAD. I still have a handful of the That Which Lurks in the Dark books left. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, this cool guy named Greg Mitchell, who's an author, did a novelization adaptation of my script for That Which Lurks in the Dark. And of course, That Which Lurks in the Dark was the script I was filming in 2020 that got shut down and then canceled. He took the script and adapted it into a novel that's really good. And he sent me a box of them to sell. And I have still a handful left, not many. So if you want one, order now. I sign them all. And it's probably the only way you'll ever get one signed by me because he's going to be selling them on Amazon and then you order them direct from Amazon. So neither he nor I are signing them. So if you want a signed one, order it from me, but there's not much time left. And the people I know who have bought them and have read it really liked it. So if you can order one, if you're interested in knowing more about what has become in essence, the lost Mimiverse film. And then, uh, Keep on keeping on. Contribute to the WAD at sentyouphoria.com and just keep paying attention. When I decide on what's next, I'll announce it. And you'll probably be one of the first people to know because you listening right now, I know you're a big fan. Also, and I think I should announce this here. I am in the process of going through a whole bunch of old props and costumes and trying to minimize how much stuff we have in our storage area in our house. 
And I think I'm going to be selling off some pretty rare collectibles here soon. So pay attention to the website, stuntyfora.com, and the Facebook page and Instagram and all the social media because once I have something cool to sell, I probably will do it on there. And it's going to be some pretty rare old props and costumes and screen-used stuff that if you've ever wanted to own a piece of Mimiverse history, this might be your chance. It'll allow me to clear up some space, but then also to get some money in for the next project and to finish off the current project. Keep it flowing to keep it alive. So pay attention for that. I don't have much more to say other than this was a project I started doing right before I got sick. <laughs> so it's a little on hold, but I plan in the next couple of weeks to really start going through some of this stuff and finding cool things that I think people might want and making them available to the general public. Because why not? I, I've been asked many times about selling screen-used props. And I know there are a couple of folks out there right now listening who are like, yep, I've got some. And we usually sell them like at the premieres and I don't often sell things outside of the silent auctions at the premiere. So this will be a nice opportunity for people to get a hold of some things that you haven't been able to before now. I don't know exactly when that'll be, but it'll be soon. So for now though, I suppose it's time to find out what happened after Demo with the Atomic Brain was filmed in this month's episode of An Oral History of the Mimiverse. So last month on an oral history of the Mimiverse, I talked about Demo with the Atomic Brain and some of the behind the scenes stories of things that occurred while we were filming the movie. And I'm sure I always leave out a bunch of stuff and I probably won't know whether or not I actually forgot anything until I catch up to now in the chronology here and then go back and listen and be like, oh, I forgot to tell this story. And I'll probably do like an edition of forgotten stories of the Mimiverse once I've done that. But I think with Demon, I told a lot of the good ones of all the crazy things that happened and, and some of the fun we had and some of the less than fun things that occurred. And so I finished shooting the movie. I was able to edit it pretty quickly, or at least I was able to finish it pretty quickly after finishing filming it. Because the last scene that we shot, which was the scene with the hypno jellyfish, like we didn't end up doing that until like June and we ended up releasing the movie in October. So there was some downtime between scenes. You know, we had to build sets, like we had to build a cave set and stuff. So there was downtime that I was able to edit as we went. And there were quite a few special effects in that movie. So I tried to stay up on them so as not to fall behind. It wasn't like Annihilate All Humans where I ended up spending months just doing special effects. A lot of times when I'd film something that would require special effects, I would try to jump into it right away so that I could get it done quickly and not be mired in it because that can sometimes be slog. It's rough when, like I said, when making Annihilate All Humans really started to wear on me of just always every night being able to like do two shots of just special effects because there were so many elements to it. it wasn't the first time i'd done stuff with special effects you know the giant spider was really effects heavy so with demon 
I tried to make sure that if I filmed something that required special effects, I would jump on editing it. Even if I was working on something else that didn't require special effects, I'd like leave that. Usually I like to, if I start on a scene, I want to edit the whole thing before I move on. With Demon, it was like I wanted to jump into the special effects to make sure I had everything and get it done and then go back to the quote unquote easier scenes. We were filming pretty late into June, knowing that I wanted to release it in the fall. And so by the time we got to that last one, I didn't have much left to edit. And we did that last one. I put it together. I edited it. We're good to go. And it was during that final editing phase because I had worked out this idea that I wanted the hypno jellyfish scenes to include some color because it was like, no, they're hypnotizing. We got to make it a little funky and I'll add a little color. That was when I realized that maybe I should do the whole movie sort of in this like almost color thing. If you look really carefully while watching Demon with the Atomic Brain, you'll notice that it's almost in color. It almost feels like it was a color movie at one point, but it's been washed out so much because it's been duplicated and shown on TV and recorded off TV on VHS and then re-recorded and then rebroadcast. And it's just, it looks like it once was in color or they didn't spend a lot of money on very high quality film stock that it just looks really muted to the point that it's almost black and white, but it's not. And that was a stylistic choice I made later because when I first did it, I figured it would just be in black and white. I film everything in color and then I kick everything to black and white. On my editing software, there's like a plug-in for black and white, but you can set a percentage of how much. So it's like you're desaturating it. And I always usually put it at 100% desaturation, which means black and white. And then I make adjustments to make it look more like classic black and white as opposed to modern filmmakers who aren't used to working in black and white. And they'll make something in black and white and they just film it in color and then turn it into black and white and figure that's good enough. But there are certain adjustments that have to be made in black and white to make things look good. Otherwise, it just doesn't look right because modern video techniques don't capture light and color the way that old film does, especially old black and white film stock. Plus, also people back then just knew how to work with it and make things look good. And I, over the years, have found little cheats and tips and tricks and things that I can do to enhance my black and white to look more like old black and white. Like I'm a person who knows how to shoot in black and white because that's important. And it was purely by accident. One of the scenes got set to 90% black and white. I didn't notice it was set that way for some reason. I think it was one of the scenes in the caves and the caves themselves were actually gray. And so there wasn't a lot of color to come through. And the guy's uniforms were like a green. So at 90% black and white, they just look like gray. Now, what happened was, is I was editing one of the scenes in the caves and Mandy was in it. If you remember, Mandy was wearing like a neckerchief. Now, the neckerchief itself was like a hot pink and in black and white, just a gray. In this scene, though, because it was accidentally set to 90%. And like I said, I was already planning on doing some color elements for the hypno jellyfish stuff. When I was editing that scene with Mandy in the caves and I did the render of all the effects and everything together and then watched it. I was like, something looks weird. Why can I see color in Mandy's little neckerchief? It's like pink. I swear I can see pink. What is happening? And I was like, as I'm watching, I'm like, I kind of like that. There's like a little bit of color, but not a lot. 
I went back and realized that for some reason it had been set to 90% and it was just a little error, but I was like, I kind of dig this. Maybe I should do the whole movie this way. So I went back and I re-rendered everything at 90%. And that's when I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to release this almost in color. <laughs> because that's the funny thing is like up to that point, I was like, I will never release anything in color ever. Everything I make is going to be black and white because I love black and white and there's not enough black and white. And Finally, in where Skeeto, I'd put the little pop of red for the blood. And I was like, well, that's an exception I'm willing to make. And then I screw up on Demon and I'm like, all right, this is pretty cool. I think I'm going to add this just to look like this weird muted half barely color slash. I mean, it's just, it looks unique. And I liked it. You can sort of see a little like green in some spots. You see certain colors and certain things. So it's like hints of color. And that was intentional by accident, which sounds weird. But after I saw it, I realized that I liked it and I kept it. And then with having the crazy jellyfish color thing anyway, I figured, well, it works. I'll just keep it. That was a stylistic choice. And I think I started coming a little more toward the side of there's nothing that says I have to only make black and white movies. And of course, then when we get into 2019's Queen of Snakes, I went full bore, oversaturated color, but that's not where we're at in the story. Although we're almost there. We'll get a little there today. So I finished the movie and we had a premiere and then we did it in October. It's only Mimiverse film released in October and it, it was a good turnout. This was the second time we did it in fall. The previous year we had done Wear Skeeto in September. This one fell into October partially because it's just how it worked out with the theater and ticket sales were still down. I talked a little bit about this in previous months about moving it from the spring into fall wasn't the best thing I ever did because a lot of people, it messed with their traditions and people are busy in the fall. They're getting into school and moving toward the holidays and stuff. And it's just like people weren't quite as available, even though I thought given the types of movies I make that they're kind of cheesy horror movies, they do well around sort of the Halloween time. But I think we just mixed up things too much. We upset the apple cart a little too far. And now suddenly we weren't getting the same kinds of crowds as we were before, but also we started moving into... I don't know. I sometimes think there's a little complacency sometimes at work where I've been doing this so long that some people, it's like there's a limit to how many people are going to remain interested forever and those who sort of come in and go out. And I think you see waves of that with some of the actors who've come into the movies for a while and then they sort of fade away. And I think that happens with even the people who attend premieres. I don't know. There's a whole bunch of factors at play, I think, when it comes to people coming to these premieres. When I first did it, I feel like there was just a different mindset amongst the movie going public, but even just the local film scene was much more of a traditional mindset of like, we're going to make a movie, we're going to show it, people are going to show up, we're going to do a live premiere. And then, you know, now we've moved into the age of streaming. Fewer people think of going to the movies as important. People had at this point changed the way they looked at even film distribution as it used to be of doing a theatrical run before you do a home video release, whereas it got to the point where it's like, no, you just 
release on home video and consumers are like, well, can't we just watch it at home? Why do I have to go to a theater? So I was continuing to do a much more traditional path of we make a movie, we do a big in-theater premiere, which I know Hollywood still does, but I think from an indie side, people are like, that's a lot of time and trouble and money. I made a movie, I'm trying to get distribution or whatever, trying to get it on Netflix or whatever. The idea of a live premiere isn't quite so important, but I'm trying to keep this classic Hollywood vibe going, right? With these cheesy old monster movies, I wanted to make sure that we continued to do that. I wanted to do something more traditional. I wanted things to feel more like old Hollywood. I wanted the actors to see themselves on the big screen. To me, that's movies, man. Otherwise, it's just TV, and that's just not as exciting. It's like theater. You don't want to watch it on your TV. You go to a theater, and you watch people put on a performance. To me, that's what the same thing about a movie is. It's a performance. It just happens to be filmed, right? It's a performance, and I want people to come experience it together. And so I've always wanted to do these premieres and do them up as a big thing. So there has been a distinct shift in audiences and what people want to do and are willing to do. And of course, like I've mentioned a million times, COVID has completely upended a lot of that. And so moving away from the place we had been for over 10 years into the fall really did change the audience a little bit. But we still were doing well, and we were still getting close to selling out the premieres. And this was back when the Heights Theater, where we always do it, still had 400 seats, and we were still able to really fill them up. I don't think we sold out, though. I think the last time we sold out was Danny Johnson Saves the World, that we full-on sold out. Once the Heights switched the seats from 400 to 240, it got a lot easier to get really close to selling out. But I don't know that we've ever fully sold out, especially in advance, since Giant Spider was probably the last time it completely sold out in advance. But the Late Night Double Feature and Danny Johnson Saves the World both sold out the day of. Wereskito and Demon came close, but they were off the mark because of the fall. Because we did Guns of the Apocalypse in the fall, too. Same thing. Now, we did Queen of Snakes back in the spring, and we did Boffo. So there's something to that. Of course, then the pandemic came, and even though we were on track to sell out in advance for The Beast Walks Among Us, we didn't because everything shut down. So anyway, so the premiere was a good one. It was fun. We had a good crowd. People seemed to really like it, and we did great. At that point... Things were really steady as far as screenings and events. That was sort of in the thick of it, where I had, over the previous maybe three or four years, really worked out a bunch of connections, a lot of them through Michael Cross down in Dallas, where I was able to do a ton of events as a guest, most of them in the Dallas area, thanks to Michael Cross. But then also just screenings, and there was like a handful of things I could always depend on every year, year in, year out. 2017, when that came out, 2018, those were the best years of it. I was just always traveling, always doing events, always doing screenings, always doing conventions, and lots of people were seeing my movies. The death of physical media was beginning. <laughs> the slow deterioration of physical media sales had begun, but we were still in a point where I could do Texas Frightmare Weekend and make a ton and sell everything I brought. 
I could do Starfest in Denver, which is no longer there, and know that I would sell a lot of stuff and meet a lot of people and have a great time. We were playing out at the Alamo Draft House down in Richardson, Texas, and things were still really good. It wasn't the height of the crazy. I think that was Giant Spider where it really felt like we were really coming up and everyone was really paying attention. This felt like the Mimiverse was a machine and it was just kind of chugging along at a good speed, at a good clip, and we were doing really well. That's what that year felt like. I had a lot of fun that year doing a lot of stuff and meeting a lot of people and having a great time seeing friends and spending time with people I really cared about. Like I said, it was like a machine that was just sort of clipping along and everything was going along nicely. It's funny because going into 2017, that New Year's Eve, going into 2017, I was at an event before we started even shooting Dean with the Atomic Brain, but I was going to do an event doing this thing in Dallas that was called Nerd Year's Eve that like no one went to, no one showed up at. Their main guest was Stan Lee and the people from the Clerks movie. And it was really cool to be at that, but like no one went to it. I remember at that, I was feeling a little down and maybe a little depressed, especially not to get political, but given the outcome of the election in 2016, it was feeling a little dark. But then as the year went on, everything turned out pretty good and pretty fine. And I think at that time, it just kind of felt like, no, everything's going to be okay forever. <laughs> like you get sort of this false sense of security, this complacency about how things are and how things are going. And, and it just felt like there was a couple really good years there of just feeling like, yeah, this is good. Things are going along fine. We're, we're chugging along and I'm digging it. So post releasing Demon and getting into Guns of the Apocalypse, I felt like everything was going great. And it's funny because, and I guess this will be the last things I talk about here is I wrote Guns of the Apocalypse in 2017 to be shot in 2018 and released in 2018. And it was an idea that went back as far as 2011, 2012, the idea of doing a Western. Someone suggested it, I think it was while we were shooting House of Ghosts. We were talking about how I was trying to find different retro classic genres to try. And someone said, well, what about a Western? And I was like, you know, I never thought about that, but if I did it, it would have to be different. It can't be a classic Western. It would have to be something interesting that would fit with what I do. And so this sort of seed was planted of a Western, a Western. What would be a good idea for Western? And at one point, and this is pretty strange, at one point, the idea for the Western was completely combined with the idea of the Wereskito. Michael Kaiser and I, in particular, had discussed this whole idea of making the Wereskito movie, where the Wereskito is the monster, but it would be in a Western setting, where the Wereskito would be much more like a, like a werewolf kind of thing that only showed up and then would kill people and no one knew what it was and they're trying to hunt it down and to set it in the Old West. And that got bandied about quite a bit. Michael and I had worked out a lot of the story and then when I came up with Where's Keto? Nazi Hunter, of course, that fell apart. But the idea of the Western had bounced around and changed and evolved. I think it was during the summer after I had finished shooting Demon when I started thinking about what to do next. And I really wanted to do the Western. And there became this whole like joke of different actors and Mark Hader and like uh, Doug Sidney who were just like, they started this thing doing hashtag do the Western you know, to try and push me, like, do the Western, you should do the Western, you keep talking about it, do it, do the Western. 
And I don't remember how or why it came up, but I started thinking about it. And I always knew that I wanted it to be a Midwestern in that it would be shot in the Midwest in the winter. For some dumbass reason, I wanted to do it in the winter. Even though I've lived here my whole life and I know how dang cold and inhospitable it gets, I was like, nah, it would look so cool. It would be like snowy and it would just really show off this sort of different look to everything. From a cinematography standpoint, I thought it would be cool because it would look different and it would look unique compared to everything else. And I really wanted to push things, right? And I remember I went and saw a movie with Steph one night, Wind River. It's got Jeremy Renner in it. Anyway, that movie is, in essence, it's just a modern Western. So it was like a Western story told from a modern perspective. And that's, I think, when things clicked that I wouldn't have to necessarily do a traditional Western. I'm like, I could do a Western-style story because you can make a movie that's modern or whatever or a science fiction movie and just make it a western like the whole the mandalorian show on disney plus is just a western but it happens to be set in the star wars universe and i started thinking about after seeing that movie i was like i could just do a western style movie that wouldn't necessarily have to be a western western and even could be modern or it could be post-apocalyptic that's it (laughs) it's like i remember thinking that's where it came from was like i could do a post-apocalyptic spaghetti midwestern and the idea of a spaghetti western was always there from the beginning because when he started talking about a western i was like i should do a western but one of the things that i hit on is like if i do it spaghetti western style i should replace everybody's voices with someone else's that was a big part of it too so i started writing the western after i released demon with the atomic brain and i had these ideas based on previous things and i was like it's fine it's time to do the western so I set about writing it and that was it. We're going to do the Western and I ended up shooting a little teaser that ended up being the beginning of the movie actually right after the demon premiere. And you can see that everything there is in color. Like the very beginning, again, me playing around with color now with me actually giving myself permission to shoot things in color. And I messed around with it where it's like, okay, I'm going to shoot this Valley here with these beautiful fall colors. And then of course, the bombs drop and everything is in black and white from that point forward. So that's me teasing color, but also using it for like a cinematic purpose of trying to be cool. So I decided I'm going to make this Western. I start writing it and I went off and I shot what is the teaser, but also is the beginning of the movie now. And I was set and ready to make it. As I'm getting it together and I'm casting it and I already knew that I wanted Tyler in it. And then I would do the voice because I'd already decided that I was going to do the spaghetti Western thing where, you know, spaghetti Westerns are called that because they were shot in usually in Spain by Italians and would use non-native English speakers and they would redub the voices so they didn't have thick Italian accents with Americans. So I thought it'd be cool to like redub everybody's voice except for one person. And that was Kira because she's the American, right? She's the, she's the, the Clint Eastwood role. As I'm getting it together and I'm casting it and starting pre-production stuff, I started getting paranoid about the idea of, oh, well, this seems like a huge undertaking. What if I can't get it done? (laughs) What do I do then? In the break between Christmas 2017, New Year's 2018, I start getting weirdly paranoid about what if I can't make this or it doesn't work. Started getting this feeling that every time I make a movie and I finish one, I feel like I dodged a bullet because I'm always worried given how much time and effort and money and people's time and just all the commitments people have to make to make a movie. I'm always like blown away by how 
lucky I've been, and this is the dodging the bullet part, lucky I've been to be able to complete 13, 14 features and all this stuff. And in the back of my head, I'm like, you know, one time at one point, there's going to be a movie that I won't be able to finish. And it starts feeling like it's been going on long enough because this is Guns of the Apocalypse is going to be movie, what, 13. I'm like, at some point, it's not going to work. And this one seems like a lot of extra work. There's a lot in this script I've written. Like, maybe this is the one that doesn't get finished. So I started panicking a little bit. I started getting kind of paranoid that this is going to happen. And I decide, when I had this downtime, I suddenly got inspired to start writing Queen of Snakes. The Queen of Snakes idea had been something that I'd come up with at one point. And my wife Stephanie and I used to take walks in the spring and the summer all the time and just talk. And I would usually bounce ideas off her as much as she didn't want me to, but I would just be like, hey, I have this idea. And she's like, okay. Well, I brought the idea of Queen of Snakes as like a vehicle for her to have a lead. And so she was very much into the idea. And so we would talk about it a bunch. So we had kind of worked out some of the ideas behind it some of the plot points and, and all that beforehand. And I found myself with nothing to do for a week. And I just sat down and started writing almost as a writing exercise of like, could I get something decent going here that could be like a backup in case guns of the apocalypse doesn't happen. And I ended up writing the script in like four days. And maybe if you've seen it and you don't like it, you're like, yeah, it shows. But no, it just, we'd worked out so much of it beforehand. It was like, and I did nothing else, which is not something I usually do when I'm writing a script. I usually write for a couple hours and then come back to it the next day. So it takes usually a week or two or three, four weeks. And this was just like, no, I had nothing else to do. So for six to eight hours every night, I just wrote. And I really liked how it was coming out and I'd print it and I'd show Steph and I'd send it to Rachel because I'd already talked to Rachel about this idea. And she was like, dude, this is good. Keep going, keep going. So Rachel was really pushing me and Steph was really pushing me and the kids were reading it, really liking it. And so it came out all in one. And suddenly I had this second script and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do now? Well, the answer to that, you'll find out next month. This has been an oral history of the Mimiverse. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales, stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series, Strange Invaders. Tonight, Dr. Shannon Tarragon and Agent 7 Ruthless Ruth Donlevy question their imprisoned enemy in Interrogating Dr. M. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. Looking at Dr. Xavier Mim, you wouldn't have thought he was the most dangerous man in the world. He was old, at least 60, and slight with thick round glasses, frizzy white hair, and a perpetual growth of salt and pepper stubble on his chin. He looked as if he could have been your eccentric grandfather. Yet, just a few weeks ago, many of my friends and fellow agents at the U.S. Science Bureau and most of Spider Squadron had fought a pitched battle against a giant tarantula outside Mim's Colorado lab. The doctor came peacefully. The spider, not so much. 
Agents 2 and 13 had made a mess of the local countryside, bombing it to hell. Mim hadn't given us much since then, alternating between taciturn silence and wild outbursts. A medical checkup revealed no obvious signs of physical illness, though clearly he wasn't normal by any stretch. He wore his lab coat while in custody after furiously resisting any attempt to put him in a prison uniform. After that kerfuffle, the Terragons decided to let him cool down in an isolated maximum security ward before trying to question him again. He was allowed pencil and paper to keep notes, and only non-uniformed agency representatives, like me and Shannon Doc Terragon, interacted with him. Eventually, Mim calmed down and seemed to become more rational. But the giant crab attack on a San Diego beach reminded everyone that we couldn't wait forever. The strange invasion of the U.S. hadn't ended just because we had Mim locked up. Shannon took a deep breath as we stood at the door to the interrogation room. Dr. M hadn't resisted being brought here, but he clearly wasn't happy either. Ready, Agent 7? Shannon asked. Ready, but remember I'm just Ruth to him, not Ruthless or Seven. Check. The room smelled old man fusty as we entered and took our seats across the interrogation table from our subject. The place was the usual sparse affair, with a one-way observation mirror on one wall. Professor Tarragon, Doc's dad, lurked behind that mirror, watching. We figured having two women he knew questioning Mim would be less threatening than adding a world-famous scientist into the mix. Mim finished scribbling notes on some papers strewn across the table and looked up as Shannon spoke. Dr. Mim, we wanted to talk to you about the giant mutations. She began. He waved away the question and gathered his papers. I told you before, I don't know anything about that. I laid out a collection of photos taken during numerous incidents that the USSB had managed to keep out of the press or cover up. It was a rogues gallery of uncanny beasts, giant ants, the corpse of a dead yeti and a giant shrew, Donna the 50-foot woman rampaging through Reno, tourist shots of the recent crab attack, explained as a movie stunt, and finally images of the giant tarantula at Mim's lab. Tell us what you know about these incursions, I said. He glanced at the photos briefly and then shook his head. I don't watch science fiction films. I fought to stay calm. A lot of people had been hurt because of Mim's experiments. These aren't movies. They're real. I tapped the pictures Agent 9 had snapped at the assault on Mim's facility. These were taken outside your lab just a few weeks ago. My lab? He mused. I need to return there. I'm in the middle of important experiments. Trying to feed the world. Shannon took another deep breath and I knew, despite our preparation, she felt exasperated too. (sighs) Well, that would be difficult, Dr. Mim, because most of your lab was destroyed by your giant spider. Mim seemed not to hear her. If only I can make my fruits more stable, but they always rot so quickly. Wait, what did you say about my lab? Shannon leaned over the table. I said it was flattened by the giant tarantula you created. She pointed at the pictures. The same way you created those giant ants and even that giant woman. I created? Nonsense. I would never do such a thing. Do you think I'm some madman from the radio thrillers? I tapped the photos, calling his attention to them again. Now he looks shaken. I'm a scientist working to help all mankind. He picked up a glass of water set out for him and took a drink. If this isn't some kind of trick, those things must have gained access to my lab somehow, gotten into the element... Yes, that must be it. I pointed at the image of Titan-sized Donna's rampage. This woman didn't go to your lab. She was sleeping at home in Reno when someone kidnapped her and turned her into one of your giant mutations. 
I, I've never been anywhere near Reno. His face grew dark, and he mumbled to himself. But it doesn't matter. A few slip-ups are bound to happen with work this momentous. It will all be worth it in the end. When we searched the wreckage of your lab, we found this. Shannon drew a small vial of glowing green goo from her pocket. Is this the element you're talking about? Is it what makes things grow to their enormous size? Mim tried to snatch the bottle from her hand, but she pulled it back. Be careful with that. His eyes burned with a fanatic fire. It's precious. Shannon stowed it back in her pocket. I know. She and her dad had been pleased to obtain even such a small sample. Where did you get it, Dr. Mim? I distilled it from the honey, of course. From hideaway honey in Colorado? I remembered the jars of the golden sweetener we'd found in the lab of Dr. Hedison, the man-sect. Mim looked away muttering, perhaps caught up in a memory. But that supply was cut off. I thought I'd have to stop my experiments. Then they gave me more. A Cheshire cat smile spread across his weathered face. Who gave you more? I asked. Was it Dr. Hedison? Hedison? That young fool. He could have been a great scientist, but he got sidetracked. Decided the best way to save humanity was to improve the species, adapt to our changing environment, population pressures, the nuclear threat, environmental changes, and all that nonsense. He should have listened more closely. Increasing the food supply is a much easier solution. Shannon stared at him intently as if trying to read his confused mind. Listen to whom? To you? Mim slapped his hand on the table. Not to me. To the voices. What voices? I felt truly puzzled. I saw that Shannon did too. The voices from the sky. I hear them at night, when everything is quiet. They've encouraged some of my best ideas, my greatest discoveries. And they provided more of the element once my source ran dry and the honey stopped flowing. I now remembered Agent One reporting that Mim seemed to be expecting a delivery when our strike team assaulted his lab. If we'd waited, hadn't attacked right away, would we have discovered who was supplying this dangerous and unstable element? Unfortunately, that opportunity was lost. Nobody would be delivering anything to Mim's destroyed lab now. Is it the Russians? Shannon leaned forward, intense. Are they the ones you're working with? Do you have a hidden radio somewhere that we didn't find? Is that how your your Soviet masters communicated with you? Mim's uproarious laughter degenerated into a coughing fit. Russians? The communists are even bigger fools than Edison. How could they help? You're not paying attention. I hear the voices here. He tapped one bony finger against his temple. Their lights shine through my windows like divine inspiration. And then I listen, and I know what to do. Shannon and I exchanged a worried glance. There seemed only one conclusion. Mim was off his rocker. The madman grinned benevolently at us. Do you know when they will bring my next delivery? I need to get back to my work. Professor Tarragon's voice crackled over the room's loudspeaker. I think that's enough for today, ladies. Mim looked around confused. But what about my element? I need my element. All my experiments hinge on it. Shannon rose. We'll let you know when it arrives. She exited and I followed her next door to the observation room. Prof Tarragon stood in a darkened corner, his hand resting on his chin. Well, that was weird, I opined. Shannon tossed up her hands, frustrated. Is he crazy? Is he really just a Soviet pawn? Tanya Ruhoff told Agent One that the Russians were having similar troubles, but she's a spy. And who else could be behind these recent monsters and UFO sightings? 
Donna mentioned lights from the sky when we questioned her, too, I noted. Professor Tarragon's pensive voice almost startled me. And when we debriefed him, Tom Stern said his wife claimed to have seen strange lights and heard messages from space before she transformed. I smacked my fist into my palm. It sure would help a lot if we could catch the Queen Bee. I bet she could tell us a lot. It still might be the Russians, Shannon observed. We know they've experimented with atomic mutation and advanced rocketry. Her father stepped into the light, his face looking grim. The question remains, which came first, the honey or the mutations? And will the giant bug incursion stop now that Mim is in our custody? Shannon wondered. Was San Diego just a fluke? Or is Mim a pawn in some kind of larger scheme that we can't see yet? I shook my head. At least you've got some of Mim's goo to work with, and we can question him again. Yes, agreed Professor Tarragon. But this discussion makes one thing very clear. What's, What's that? that? Shannon and I asked. We need more specimens. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Interrogating Dr. M, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced and edited by Christopher R. Mim and read by Stephanie Mim, who also played Agent 7, Ruthless Ruth Donlevy, and featured Lisa Sancello as Dr. Shannon Z. Doc Tarragon, Jim Norgard as Dr. Xavier Mim, a.k.a. Dr. M, and Mike Cook as Professor Niles Q. Tarragon. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2023 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. This is the St. Euphoria Audiocast Network. Thank you so much for listening this month. Uh, it's been a month. I hope you had a good holiday season. I hope you're ready for this 2024. Let's hope good things happen. Let's hope everything you have on your resolution list comes to pass. Me, I just want to not get COVID. <laughs> in this year and I want to put out a movie and start working on another one. I just want to keep the Mimiverse alive. That's my resolution. And maybe drop 10 pounds, 20 pounds, the normal stuff. In the meantime, as you work toward your resolutions, as I always say, be good. But if you can't do that, be good at it. I will talk to you again next month. Mm-hmm.